Well, we're in the series on the names of God. And the reason we're in the series is because names have meanings, right? In our culture, names are chosen uh, to be pretty or sound good, or maybe even honor a family name, a family member. I mentioned last, last week, my name is kind of a, a sucky name. It, it means uh, land dweller or dweller of the valley. Sumiko has a beautiful name. Her me- name means child of clarity or child of goodness, a beautiful child, right? But like names names have meaning and hers is very accurate. Mine, you know, I'm living in Silicon Valley, so I suppose it's accurate. You know, Dennis, uh, here's a few more names, just so you guys know. Dennis is kind of an interesting name. It means a follower of Dionysius, which, which is a Greek god. So Dennis means a follower of Dionysius, yet Janet means God's gracious gift. It's a gift from God. Uh, just so you know, Ken or Kenneth means handsome. Uh, totally accurate. And Wendy, it means friend or <laughs> a blessed ring. David uh, means beloved. Uh, Ruth also means friend. Here's an interesting one. Stanley, your name means stony meadow. And Esther, your name means a star. Well, when we think of names today, we don't give it much significance. But in the ancient world, names were more than just names. Names revealed character. It revealed promises. It revealed personality even. In the Bible, we have people like Abraham. He's the father of many nations, right? And he's given this name even when he has no kids. It's a promise. And that's what Abraham means, father of many nations. Or we have people like Jacob, who is grabbing his twin brother's ankle as he is being born. And his name means heel grabber or supplanter. And God has names too, right? Sometimes we just think of God as God, or sometimes we just think of God as as maybe Jesus or the Father, Holy Spirit. But throughout Scripture, God reveals his name to us, and they teach us something about his character, about his personality, about his relationship to us. And the reason we're going through this is because this year we want to fall deeper in love with God and to love him with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And it's so important that we know who God says he is and not who we think he is. And when we love God, we are loving the God who has revealed himself to us. And so today, uh, today as we uh, look at one of the names of God, I want us to look at uh, this name, El-Rohi, right? It looks like Elroy, and maybe you might read it that way, like the uh, the dog in the Jetsons, but it's El-Rohi, and it means the God who sees. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. And uh, while you're turning there, uh, before we start reading, I want to give a little bit of a background before we get to Genesis chapter 16. There's so much good stuff here that I hope you have some time to go back and reflect on it. You might remember way back in Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, go and leave your people. And I will bless you and I will make you a great nation. And Abraham believes and he leaves everybody behind. He brings his his immediate family and for a number of years, uh, God's blessing him, but there's no kids. Well, after 10 years, uh, God comes back again to Abraham and and he says to him, look, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. Abraham says, well, God, you you really have. But, you know, honestly, I have no kids. and, And you said I'd have a lot of kids. And I guess what you meant by that, and it's a little saddening, is my servant will have to carry on my line. All my stuff and everything is going to go to Eliezer. And God says, no, Abraham, 
it's not going to go through LEAs. In fact, it's going to go through you. It's going to go through your line. And don't worry. Look up at the stars. As many stars are in the sky, as many grains of sand on the seashore, he'll say later on, that's how many your descendants will be. And Abraham believes God. And so now we get to chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Abraham chapter 16. Uh, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, Sarai, her name is Sarai now. It changes to Sarah later. They still have no kids. Now, in the ancient culture, and maybe even for us today, it's an extremely painful area for her. Right? Children not only were resources to help around the family, but children were literally seen as a source of wealth, a source of blessing. A person who had a lot of kids indicated that God was truly happy with them. Or that's how they perceived it. And it pained Sarai to hear about this promise from Abraham all the time. Abraham's telling her, Sarah, we'll have kids. We'll have as many as sands on the sea. We'll have as many as stars in the sky. You could count on it. And she's probably thinking, you know, Abraham, I'll just settle for one. Just, I, I just want one. So starting in verse one, we read, now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So uh, after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her wife, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. Uh, we're just going to pause there for a little bit. Now, as we read this story, maybe we're thinking, what is going on? Right, this is this is crazy. This is you know, uh, this just this polygamy stuff is is nuts, right? And but before we get too judgmental, I just want to give a little historical background. There are scholars and a lot of commentators who say what Sarai suggested was an acceptable practice in those days in the Middle Eastern culture. Basically, Hagar would serve as a surrogate, but the child would become Sarai's. And in the ancient world, this was a known practice. It wasn't what God had planned. It wasn't what God had promised. It wasn't what God had told Abraham, you will have a son with Sarai. But Abraham goes along with his wife's suggestion and he takes Hagar as his wife. It's a second tier wife, you might want to say, or you might, you know, say a sister wife. And Hagar conceives. Just as a side note, anytime polygamy is mentioned, uh, whether with Abraham or with David or Solomon in scripture, it always ends bad. So guys, don't use this as biblical proof for having a second wife. Or ladies, don't use this as biblical proof for having a second husband. But look what happens next. When he went into Hagar and she conceived, uh, she looked with contempt on her mistress. She looked with contempt on her mistress. You see, Hagar sees this sudden reversal of roles, right? She comes in with this family as a slave, as a servant from Egypt. Actually, scripture repeatedly tells us that she is an Egyptian. She's an outsider, right? She's not part of this in crowd. And the people she lives with, they don't know her culture. They don't know her language. They don't know her custom. She's the lowest person on the totem pole. 
But in one instant, she gets elevated to wife. And then she gets elevated to mother-to-be. And we don't know exactly how she showed contempt. Maybe she gloated in front of Sarai as her belly started getting larger, right? Maybe she stopped serving in the ways that she had previously done. Or maybe uh, she, she just said, I'm pregnant, you're not. So there, that's it. Whatever the case, there was a power shift. And Sarai was livid. Her plan to help God along was coming off the rails. So what does Sarai do? It's kind of interesting if you continue to read along with me. She goes to Abram and she says, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And so what she does, uh, she, she basically is blaming Abraham now. She's like, look what you did, husband. You got her pregnant. And now look where it's gotten us. We have this servant who is now, you know, gloating over all of us. She thinks she's too good for me. This is on you, husband. It's a tough situation for Abraham. I, I think uh, just reading this, you, know, it's like you try to do right by God. You try to do right by your wife. You try to do right by your second wife. You know, you, you try to do everything right, but in the end, you get the short end of the stick. So what is Abraham to do? Well, we know what he doesn't do, right? He doesn't stand up for what's right. He doesn't comfort his wife, who is obviously masking all this pain with anger, right? He doesn't protect his, his new wife uh, or, or his son-to-be. What he does is he abdicates, and this is what he says. Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Great job, Abraham. Way to abdicate your responsibility as the head of the household. Right? When the chance to show faith, to show trust, to be a man of, of principle, a man of faith, a man of God, he crumpled and he basically said, whatever you want to do, honey, Go ahead and do. And now it brings us into this passage where we hear the name of God, El-Rohi. Now the story shifts over to Hagar. She runs away from Abram and Sarah, and she's out in the wilderness. And notice what happens next, starting in verse 7. Then the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. So Hagar is running away from this bad situation. The angel of the Lord, who we will later learn is God himself, says, go back. Now, some of us reading this might think that is the worst possible solution, God. Like, why would you send Hagar back to the place where her master has abandoned her, her mistress has abused her, right? Sarah might be thinking, do you know where I just came from? Do you know what you're asking? But the angel of the Lord, he continues and he says, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. 
And he goes on and he says, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Basically, we're going to pause here because as modern readers, we're thinking, what kind of God would ask a victim to return to their abuser? And maybe some of us listening right now, you're in a situation where abuse is prevalent and active. So hear me when I say this. If that is you, get somewhere safe. Contact someone who can help you. I do not believe that God is making a universal principle here that all victims of abuse are to return to their abuser. But what God is doing, however, is very unique to Hagar. Notice that the angel of the Lord, uh, who is God, he calls Hagar by her name. He knows that she's a slave. He knows that she's an Egyptian, but only God calls Hagar by her name. Abraham and Sarai never once address her by her name. Only the narrator does, as you're reading through this. Only the narrator calls her Hagar, but Abraham always says his servant, the Egyptian. But God does. And God calls her by her name because he knows her, not generically, but specifically. He knows her uniquely. This is the beginning of the God who sees her. Secondly, In the context of what we are reading, we need to remember that a pregnant woman, a slave no less, wandering around the desert trying to make it back to her homeland in Egypt, would have been in a very precarious situation. The journey alone would have been challenging for someone who is not pregnant, uh, not to mention the predators or even other travelers who would take her and uh, her unborn son into slavery once again. And what God does for her is very, very subtle, right? It's clear in the Hebrew. And for us as English readers, it's a little bit, um, we might miss it. But notice that he says, this is the name of your son. His name is Ishmael. That means God hears. El hears, right? God has heard you. God has heard, oh, God has heard your cries. Um, Let me see. Uh, let me know if the slides aren't working, um, but if it doesn't work, Aaron, please go ahead and advance it. But not just that, not just, not only does he say, God has heard uh, your cries. He also tells, uh, he also tells Hagar that your son will be a wild donkey of a man. Now it's very kind of, it's an interesting phrase because when we think of donkey, we're like, Oh, he's stubborn or, Oh, you know, he's like uh, unwilling to work with other people. He's wild or he's resistant. But in the ancient Hebraic mindset, a wild donkey represented freedom. One commentator compares this usage of wild donkey uh, to the way that Americans might view a wild monkey, uh, mustangs running free in the Old West. And so when he says, your son will be like a wild donkey, he's painting Hagar a picture. The God who hears will be running free, not under slavery, not under oppression, not under anybody's rule. He will be running free like the wild donkeys that you see running around. The last statement that, that he says to her is, he shall dwell against all of his kinsmen. 
And what this means is it's not merely that he would be in contention with them. We do see that. That actually happens throughout all of history. Uh, the, the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac are always at war. But what this means is that not only would Hagar have a son, reminding her that God hears her pains, but what God is also promising her is a future, a future free from slavery, a future uh, where her son can roam free, not as a substitute for another woman, but what God is saying is Ishmael will be free, will be independent, will will not be uh, under somebody's rule. And what God is saying to Hagar is, Hagar, I see you. I see what you're going through. I see your pains. I see your suffering. I see your abandonment and your loneliness. And I'm going to do something about it. Notice what she says next. Before we get there, in your affliction, God sees you and God will see you through. That's what he's saying to her. But notice what um, he says next. Oh, what is going on? And fast forwarded all these slides. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. And that's Elroy. And she says, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. In verse 14 says, therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the, the name of the son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 year old, years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. In verse 13, she calls God El Roy, the God who sees, the God who sees her. And here is the main idea of this passage. God sees you in your affliction. God sees me in my affliction. In the midst of her sorrow, in the midst of her pain, in the midst of her hurt, God sees her, her loneliness, her isolation, Right? Look at what it says in verse uh, 11. The Lord has listened to your affliction. The Lord has listened uh, to your affliction. God sees you and listens to your affliction. If you feel alone, you feel like you're suffering or you're all alone and no one understands your situation, know this. God sees you. He sees your affliction. He sees your pain. He sees your hurt. He sees your loneliness. He sees your brokenness. In fact, the name she is to give to her yet unborn son is not only will God see, but God hears. God hears the cry of the brokenhearted. We read in Psalm from David, King David, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And we're just reminded that God sees you when you're feeling crushed. God sees you when the weight of the world is overwhelming to you and nobody else sees that. God sees you when you hear that a loved one doesn't have much longer to live. God sees you when your job announces that layoffs will be coming. God sees you when someone you know is sick. When the bills start coming and the cash is dried up when you feel hurt or misunderstood or anxious or scared, when you think what you do is meaningless and no one notices, God sees you. And that's who God is. 
And I believe some of you right now need to hear this. Maybe you're like Hagar. Maybe you feel misunderstood or you feel fear or you feel lonely. You feel like an outcast. You feel unloved. You feel inadequate. You feel unwelcome. You feel like there's no one in the world who can possibly understand what you are going through. No one in the world who can see all that you're doing. And God says to you, I am El Roy. I am the God who sees you. And look at what he tells Hagar in verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. He's saying, Hagar, go back. Right? Can you imagine going back to the work that has been miserable for you? Going back to the people who aren't like you and don't like you? Going back to where you'll be considered second class? Going back to Abraham and Sarai? And Hagar must have felt miserable, right? She must have felt, God, you're nuts. There's no way I'm going back. Maybe for some of us, it's the same. There's no way I'm going to try to do that again. Like I just failed so miserably. There's no way I'm going to extend myself or reach out to others or love others. There's no way I'm going to put myself out there. I just get rejected. But God doesn't just say, I see you. God has a plan for you. He says, not only do I see you, I'm going to see you through this. In verse 10, we read this. Then the angel of the Lord said, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And what he's saying is, listen, trust me. I'm going to make sure you have a nation too. Your son will have multitudes of children. It's almost a repetition of the promise given to Abraham, right? He's like, you will also have your own multitudes. But what I want us to remember today is in your affliction, friends, in your pain, in your loneliness, in your hurts, in your anxiety, in your fears, God sees you and God will see you through. God sees you and God will see whatever you are going through right now. He will see you through. What are you going through? What afflictions are you going through? What struggles? What trials? Just this past week, if you receive our weekly newsletter, I was so proud of Kaya. She shared something that was so scary for her, right? The uncertainty of going back to school with the uncertainty of her own health, uncertainty of social interactions and, and relational interactions, Right, and, and, and I want to say to her and to all of you, God sees you. God sees your fears. For some of us listening, maybe it's that same pain that Sarai felt, the sting of barrenness, the deafening silence in your house, the nursery that never came to life. And every month you're reminded it's quiet in here. And what El Roy reminds us is God sees you and God knows your pain. For some of us, it's a deep desire to be in a relationship, to be loved by someone, to love someone unconditionally, to share your life with someone, but it just hasn't happened yet. And I want you to know that God sees you. El Roy sees you. For some of us, it's an estranged relationship with a child or with a parent. Attempts after attempts have been made. Attempts after attempts have been rebuffed or unanswered. And I want you to know God sees you. God knows what you're going through. 
And when you think no one knows what you are going through, that you are all alone, I want you to remember this. In your affliction, God sees you and God will see you through. Well, you know, the story doesn't end here because later on, as we go on a couple chapters in Genesis 21, we see that Isaac now has been born. And if you're familiar with the story, you know, Isaac was a born of a promise to Sarah and it's a, a, she laughs. And so she names him Isaac. So Abraham and Isaac uh, have this child and we read in Genesis chapter 21 uh, and the child grew and was weaned and Abraham made a uh, great feast on the day that Isaac uh, on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born uh, to Abraham. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be with, uh, heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing uh, to, to Abraham on account of his son. And here's what's going on. Sarah finally realizes the promise of God. Right? She has her own child. The child of laughter is, is what Isaac means. But here's the problem. Hagar, the Egyptian, and her son Ishmael were still in the picture. Now, in the ancient world, this could po pose a problem because Ishmael is the oldest child. Ishmael is legally uh, the oldest son, and he would inherit all the promises, all the blessings from Abraham. And Sarah, I was thinking, or Sarah at this point is thinking, I'm not going to share any of this inheritance with this kid. I don't want this kid getting any of the food, any of the resources, any of the attention that could be going to my precious baby, Isaac. So she tells Abraham, get rid of him. I don't care how you do it, but just get rid of them. Now, Abraham was displeased about the whole situation. You, you can imagine, right? He loves his wife. He, he loves his newborn son, but he also loves Ishmael, right? A great deal. This is his son. This is a uh, fruit of his loin. So once again, he's in a tough spot. But this time God speaks to him. And this is what God says to him. God said to Abraham, do not be, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham arose, uh, rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So basically what happens here is Hagar gets kicked out with nothing but the clothes on her back, some bread and a skin of water, like a canteen, right? It gets worse though. We keep on reading in verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Now, Hagar is sitting out here in the desert, right? And the realization probably dawns on her that she's going to die and he's going to die. And it's going to be horrible. And, and she doesn't want to witness it. She doesn't want to see the suffering. So she puts him a bit away so she doesn't have to watch him suffer. And she starts weeping. She starts crying out, right? I would imagine this is the lowest point in her life. When all hope is lost, when death is staring you in the face, she might be wondering, well, where are you now, Elroy? Where is the God who sees, the God who promises to see me through? 
Where is the God who promised me a child and a nation? Where is the God who, here's my affliction, the God who's close to the brokenhearted. Where are you now, God? And I wonder how many of us have been in a place where Hagar is right now, where you're just so desperate. You're, you're out, of, out there in the wilderness. You're out there in the desert. You're all by yourself. And you're all but certain that all hope is gone. And you're at this point of despair, of desperation, and you're basically just about to give up. And maybe like Hagar, you don't know what else to do, but lift up your voice and cry. You know, for some of us, this is a good reminder. When hope is lost, cry out to God. Because sometimes we feel that it's more faithful for us to be stoic, to not question God, to not show our pain, not show our hurts, not show our frustrations. But God is big enough to handle your cries. God is big enough to handle your hurts. God is big enough to handle your doubts and your questions, your frustrations, your anger. So cry out to God. Cry out, where are you, El Roy? Where are you, the God who sees? Cry out. And God responds to Hagar. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. You see, God answers Hagar. But notice what scripture says. God does hear, but who does God hear? He hears the voice of the boy. Make no mistake, even Ishmael's name is important. God hears me. God has heard your cry, Hagar. And God reaffirms his promise. I'm going to make him into a great nation. He's basically saying, Hagar, I see you, and I'm going to see you through this. I promise. But notice what he says, though. I, I think it's kind of interesting. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. God didn't supernaturally make the water appear. He opened her eyes to this reality. He opened her eyes to, to see in ways that only God could allow her to see. In her lowest point in her life, when there was no other hope, when there was no other uh, source of rescue for her or for her son, God comes down and he hears her. He sees her. And he rescues her because that's who God is. The God who sees is the God who will see you through. Maybe for some of us, we're in this desert today. And we're wondering, where are you, God? Where is God in my pain and in my loneliness? Where is God in my worries and in my anxieties and in my fear? Where is God when friends have abandoned me and jobs have eluded me and relationships have escaped me? Where is God when my work is slowly killing me? Where is God when the doctor gives me news that no one ever wants to hear? Where is God in all of this? And God says, I am right here and I see you and I promise you, I will see you through this. I will see you through your loneliness. I will see you through your frustration. I will see you through your despair. I will see you through your illness. I will see you through your anxieties. I will see you through your fears because I am El Roy, 
I am the God who sees. My question for us is, do you believe that? Have you experienced El Roy? Do you trust that the God who sees is a God who will see you through right where you are at? Now, some of you may be wondering and asking, now that's Hagar, Pastor Dean. How do I know that that is what God is saying to me? Right? Like, how do I know that God gives me this promise? And friends, we know this is true of God because we are like Hagar. Because while we were still sinners, without hope, without rescue, without a future, Christ comes down. God sends his own son, Jesus Christ, into the lowest point of our life. I mean, we were basically shipwrecked, waiting to die. On our way to hell, forever separated from God. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't rescue ourselves. And Christ comes down into our lowest point, a point where we couldn't save ourselves, and he dies for us. While we were in our most desperate condition, without hope, without a way forward, without a future, God comes down in human form, and he opens our eyes to the spiritual reality of our absolute desperation for him. And he says, drink from this living water. A couple thousand years later, Jesus tells another woman who is also an outcast, who is also an outsider, who is also ostracized, looking for water. And he says to her in John chapter 4, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, meaning the water from the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, this message is for you and me. Jesus has proven that he sees us. He sees you. Jesus has proven that he hears us. He hears you. And Jesus has come down to show us that he will not leave us, that he will see us through. Now, I want us to know the way he sees us through may not happen in the timeline that we want. It may not happen according to our ways, but he will see you through. I'm reminded in the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, these great men and women, Abraham and Sarah are included. God saw them and God saw them through whatever they were going through, men like Isaac and Jacob and Moses. But look at what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 11. All of them, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. What is God saying? He's saying, I see you, Abraham and Sarah and Moses and Isaac and you listening right here. I see you and I will see you through. It might not be what you think. It will be like, it might not even happen in this lifetime. Moses never got to enter into the promised land while he was still alive. Abraham only caught a glimpse of one grain of sand, right? They didn't get to experience the whole thing, but they trusted God when God says, I see you and I will see you through. And you can be sure, you can be confident whether in this life or the next, God will keep his promise to you. So what's our takeaway? If you're struggling with God, If you're wrestling with doubts, wrestling with loneliness, with feelings of being misunderstood, 
if you're struggling to live the life of faith and, and those around, if you're struggling to, to live the life of faith and, and those around you are, are mocking you, right? They're making fun of you. They're ridiculing you for standing out for what you know is true, what you believe in. I want you to know God sees you. God sees all that you're doing. He sees your good deeds. He sees your faithfulness. He sees your desire to honor him and to worship him. He sees your desire to live faithfully. He sees your desire to love him and to love others. And I want you to know this. God will see you through whatever affliction you are going through right now. Along with the great cloud of witnesses, as the author of Hebrew tells us, God will see you through. So friends, be strong. Be courageous Christians. Be bold and reckless mighty men and women of faith. Choose faith even when it looks foolish. Trust that God sees you and God will see you through. Choose faith even when the world tells you otherwise. Choose faith even if it makes no sense because God sees you, child of God. And God knows you. And God has promised to always be with you, to give you an eternity, to give you peace, to give you hope. So believe in God's word and claim God's word because God will see you through whatever affliction you have. God God sees you and God will see you through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being El Roy to us. No matter what we are going through, you see us. You see our hurts and you see our pains. And Father, I pray, I know there are many in our congregation who are struggling right now. They're struggling relationally. They're struggling physically. They're struggling emotionally. They're struggling spiritually. Will you remind them that you are the God who sees and you're the God who hears and you're the God who will see us through? And will you be Elroy to them wherever they are at? to me, to all of us. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, now is the time for communion. If you haven't had a chance yet to get your communion elements, you can go ahead and get them now. Uh, I'm going to take the bread and then I'm going to take the cup. I'll read the passage that uh, Paul records from the Lord's Supper. And then I'm going to pray. And when you are ready... Uh, you could feel free to uh, take the elements uh, at the appropriate time. We're going to continue on with worshiping God. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth, but he records what Jesus uh, has said. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded as we take these elements that 
you're a God who sees. The very fact that we are taking these elements, a reminder that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die for us, a reminder that you will see us through, that Jesus Christ will return for us. It's a reminder, this is who you are. You are a God who sees. You saw us in our hopelessness, in our helpless estate. And you came to us and you rescued us, even though it cost you your own life. So Father, as we as a church family, as we take these elements, would you remind us that you are the God who sees and you have seen us in our most broken and desperate condition and you will continue to see us through. Help us be faithful. Help us to trust in you and in your character. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.